Friday lunchtime lectures at the Open Data Institute. Hi, uh, so my name is Alex Dunn. Um, I'm the executive director of the Engine Room. Um, we support organizations to integrate data and technology into their work. Um, and a big part of what we do is support those organizations to use data responsibly. And a few years ago, we started a term and what ended up becoming a community that we call responsible data. So I'm gonna talk a bit today about uh, responsible data and how that could be relevant and is relevant for the open data community. Um, so really quickly, um, I'm the co-founder of the organization as well, the Engine Room, um, and I do a lot of advisory work, so supporting organizations through the process of incorporating technology into their work. Um, I sit on the Open Technology Fund Advisory Council and the Technology Advisory Council for Amnesty International, um, who we do a lot of work with. Um, a bit more about the Engine Room. Um, we do a variety of different engagements with a variety of different partners around the world, um, but we focus on three types of activities. Uh, the first is direct support. So we accompany organizations through the process of using data and technology and actually implementing projects with them. Um, we also do work connected to communities. So we invest in and help design communities of practice, responsible data being one of them. Um, and we also do research. Um, so the idea being that there's a lot of hype about how data and technology can be used, but ultimately there's very little rigorous assessment of how it's actually used, what works, what doesn't, um, and generally how we can improve our decision making around these areas. So we spend quite a bit of energy trying to structure uh, research around uh, how data and technology are used in social change. Um, we're also a great team, it's not just me. Um, we're 15 people in 10 countries, um, and it is a fantastic organization of people with a variety of interests and skill sets and personalities. Um, and uh, in, in each way, every one of them provides support to partners uh, pretty much on, on a daily basis. Um, so why do we do what we do? Um, I think I like to start with this before getting into responsible data because by the end of the presentation, you might think I'm quite a negative Nancy about the role of data and technology and social change work. Um, but I think generally, I really believe that technology and data offer great value and can offer great value. It can increase participation and engagement in social causes. Um, it can result in better data, better research, better decisions. And if you use it effectively, it can actually decrease the cost of operating a charity or a social organization, which can have massive uh, benefits in ages of austerity and, and big society. So what am I going to talk about today? Uh, three big things. Um, one, what is responsible data? Um, I'm sure when you hear the phrase itself, it's quite descriptive, um, so you probably already have, have thoughts about it, but we've spent quite a bit of time working with different people in our community to, to help ground that definition, to, to sort of support an exploration of the concept itself. Um, the second is tactics for responsible data process. Um, it's all well and good to talk about high and mighty principles, but ultimately, how does this change the way that we work and what kind of processes can we consider to put in place in our, in our work? Um, and then the third is how to apply them directly into open data work. Um, I'm not an open data expert, um, but I think that many of these principles I've seen successfully applied by open data organizations, and I think generally it's up to different communities to see how to adapt them appropriately for their own use. So what is responsible data? Um, we have a handy definition that was defined by an 
by the community at an event a few years ago. Um, and surprisingly, it's held up quite well. I think we've made, maybe made a couple of tiny changes in the text, but ultimately the concepts have, have withstood. Um, but the definition, and I'll read it out quickly, but I'll also go through some of these concepts because there's a lot in this definition. <laughs> um, but responsible data is the duty to ensure people's rights to consent, privacy, security, and ownership around the information processes of collection, analysis, storage, presentation, and reuse of data while respecting the values of transparency and openness. And I think that third or fourth clause, the last clause, um, is really important to remember that responsible data is not about privacy and protecting information from publication or openness. Um, it includes openness and transparency within it. Um, so I think that sometimes there can be a tendency to create uh, tensions or unnecessary spectrums or dichotomies that are unnecessary because I think incorporated within responsible data is this idea of openness as, a, as an important principle. So it's also a process and not an outcome. So I think it's also important to remember that like, there's no responsible data standard. You don't get a big stamp of approval saying, I did it, I have a responsible data set right here. Um, it's much more about an ethos and a way of approaching projects. Um, so keeping that in mind also means that you can not be stressed out if you feel like a large proportion of your work maybe isn't already incorporating these principles. It's a process with a destination that is not clear, like you, you will be going throughout this process for forever. Um, so feeling um, inadequate or like you haven't uh, addressed these issues doesn't mean you, you're wrong or you're doing something wrong. It just means that we all can get better and we, we should try to. So quickly going through the, the concepts and the responsible data definition. Consent um, is uh, a very loaded word with lots of meanings in a lot of different contexts. Um, it has legal meanings, um, it has social meanings, um, it has technical meanings, um, but I think in the context of responsible data, it's a, it's a really key concept. If we're producing data sets, it is very, very important that people and communities that are represented in them have a are included in processes that they get to decide if they are included at all, if they are included, how they are included, if they are included and they've decided how they'll be included, how that data will be used and reused and repackaged. Um, and it's a critical component of responsible data practices. It's not a tick box. It is an actual uh, important uh, process. The second is privacy. I think this is probably the one that we all know the best. Um, uh, protecting people from being exposed in ways that they do not want to be exposed um, is obviously a key component of this, but it is not the only component of responsible data. The third is security. Um, sometimes we conflate uh, privacy with security. Sometimes we conflate responsibility with security. If I can protect these assets, if I can protect this information from hackers, uh, I am responsible with this data, when ultimately the data you have might be irresponsibly collected, it might be irresponsibly con containing information about individuals, it might be um, violating lots of ethical standards, um, even if you have this wonderful techie who's protecting your tower of, of resources and assets. The fourth is ownership. And I think this is an interesting one for the open data community because essentially the open data community is trying to shift ownership of data assets from governments or from people in powerful positions to the public domain, which means it's shifting ownership to the public. But there's other aspects of ownership that are really important. Um, ownership um, of making decisions about consent and these kinds of things. Also ownership in how communities are represented and how communities are prioritized based on the data sets that are opened. Um, so if the general public isn't actually choosing how to influence what data is made open, they don't have any ownership in the process. Um, and so ownership in the sense of agency, I think is another really, really important one to think about. 
And then the fifth one is obviously values of transparency and openness, which I think we're all familiar with. Um, so why does it matter? I think it's quite obvious after going through those things that we're all very concerned with those issues. But in my view, and I think it's, it's almost an uncontestable statement, that if you're using open data for social outcomes and you don't plan it responsibly, you can't achieve long-term change. It's just not possible. If you're, if you're not uh, using data, collecting data, managing it, um, and putting it to use for a social cause, and you're not doing that with values of inclusion and values of openness and values of uh, ownership and community engagement, you can't achieve long-term change. And just a few sort of spectrum statements. I think um, thinking about um, what we do and don't want and what we do and don't mean when we say open data is a useful place to, to start and think about where we kind of fall on our opinions about, about these things. And I think we've had some really interesting examples lately of um, radical transparency. So if we want open data, where is, where is the line that we draw? Where is the line where we say, actually, we think transparency beyond this point is not in the public interest? We actually believe that that is unethical or that is irresponsible. Um, I'm not sure how many of you have been following the uh, WikiLeaks release of the DNC emails in the US, but there was a, an ad hominem attack in an email uh, about Lawrence Lessig, who's a Creative Commons uh, activist and uh, fantastic lawyer who was actually running for president earlier this year for a little bit. And his response wasn't um, aggressively negative against uh, the Clinton campaign or the DNC. His response was, we need to have a conversation about whether or not publishing an email where someone says something negative about me as an individual is in the public interest. Like, wh why are we, why are we um, as journalists or as media or as the general public, why are we interested in this information if it's not actually for the public interest? So I think in, in that sense, recognizing that there is a line that we need to draw somewhere means that there needs to be a conversation about where that line is drawn. And the second question I think uh, is important to consider when thinking about these issues is, do we want open data to facilitate further consolidation of power? Um, I think that there's, there's been some wonderful writing about how by investing public resources in opening data, we're releasing assets that only the powerful can capitalize on. So if you are a company who has resources and a team of developers who can build an app on top of a massive open data set and make a lot of money, is it actually in the public interest for governments to invest in that? Is, is economic value being created for the, the few actually in the public interest? Which leads to the next question of, do we agree that open data is more than the economic value it creates? Are we actually trying to use open data for social outcomes, or are we trying to make a small number of people make more money or make governments um, in a position to be able to tout that they have made businesses more successful in, in a particular country? So with all of these sort of spectrum questions, like I don't have answers to those questions, um, but I think it, it makes it really clear very quickly that deciding what, how, where, and in what order of priority we make things open is really key to being able to have a responsible data approach to the open data movement and work. So again, responsible data is a process, not an outcome. I've just thrown a couple of sort of language grenades into the room. Um, so I wanna talk a little bit about what kinds of processes uh, are practical ways of addressing some of these concerns. Um, and I want to talk about a couple. Um, one is responsible data red teaming. How many of you are familiar with the concept of red teaming in general? Okay, one, two. Okay, so red teaming is the idea that when you're 
doing something, uh, oftentimes technical development, you think about that technical development from the perspective of a potential adversary and from the perspective of someone in the future who's assessing your project for vulnerabilities, but also as the environment around it changes, how that changes the vulnerabilities of your project. Um, it can be really useful for uh, responsible data work, but I'll go into a bit more about what it means. Um, the second is evaluating for open washing. Um, I know this is a, a concept that many are familiar with, but I'll go into a little bit more detail about what it is and what it means. Um, and then the third is power analysis, which I'll talk a little bit more about in just a minute. Um, and I have a little example below. Um, it was quite difficult to find a general enough example that wasn't um, uh, picking on someone unfairly um, or something that wouldn't uh, work across these different examples. But the example here is publishing information about government service delivery statistics is always a good idea. So if we can use that as kind of a, a frame of thinking when we go through these different exercises and processes, it's, it's a useful thing to sort of test how you would approach that example uh, based on these different, these different things. So starting first with responsible data red teaming, it's built up of three big components. Um, one is devil's advocacy. So the devil's advocate would say, publishing information about government service delivery statistics is always a good idea. Well, the annoying person in the room that is always the contrarian that says, uh, you use the word always, so I know there's something I can find in this sentence. Um, the devil's advocate would say, what happens if you publish public service delivery statistics in a community that's poor, and that actually drives down property values, so you end up entrenching poverty because you're showing that government services are not qual quality in that neighborhood. What does that do? Do we still want to do it? Um, so maybe we should say, Publishing information about government service delivery statistics is often a good idea. Um, but qualifying language and also making sure that we're, we're, we're listening to our devil ad, devil's advocates. Um, the second is high impact, low probability analysis. So risk is usually comprised of impact and probability. So the probability that something is going to happen that causes some kind of impact. So a high probability, high risk situation is there's a good chance that in the next year you'll leave your phone somewhere and you'll leave it behind and you'll lose it, it'll be stolen, and you won't have put a, put a pin code on your phone. And someone will have access to all of your information in your phone. That's a high risk, high probability event if we're thinking about like data and information. A low probability, high impact thing, uh, and there are exercises around this, and if you guys want links, I'm happy to share. But a low probability, high impact would be the NSA is currently stalking you um, and is following your every move and is probably going to illegally rendition you somewhere in the next few days. That is a low probability. It's probably not going to happen, but it would have a really big impact on your life. Um, what we oftentimes don't think about when we're thinking about data and information, particularly in social change groups, is what high impact, low probability looks like. So maybe there's a low chance that it'll happen, but it would have a huge impact if it did happen. And so thinking about that when we're thinking about publishing data and information, particularly in open data, can be a really helpful thing to think openly about. And it requires creativity because you have to be kind of you have to embrace your inner paranoia. You have to think about things that are, might not, might not uh, happen, but ultimately it's, it's really good to be thinking about that as, as, as one end of the spectrum. Um, and then the third bit is wargaming. So this is, the devil's advocate is someone who cynically assesses a situation to make it easier for you to not miss something that's quite obvious. Wargaming is about thinking about how, as something unfolds, how other people will act 
how you will act and how things will change over the next five or 10 years. This is thinking like a chess player. This isn't thinking like um, a technologist necessarily. Um, and I think that there's a, we're quite good at sort of static risk analysis, but when it comes to long-term thinking and really getting into the weeds of what might happen, I think we're quite bad at it because it's uh, much more predictive and requires uh, much more creativity. So those are the sort of three pieces of responsible data red teaming. But in general, um, I mean, the, the theory behind responsible data red teaming is to stay on your toes, to not get complacent or say, we did something similar last year so we can just do it again without thinking about it. Um, it also is about encouraging creative thinking about future changes. Um, an example here is um, I was speaking to a community of uh, HIV vaccine clinical trial community people, um, so doctors that go around the world and, and they conduct clinical trials to test new medicines for HIV vaccines. Um, and one was discussing in the course of that clinical trial, um, they were deciding what unique identifier they should give to a patient. So someone that comes back again and again and receives this medicine and they, they do tests on that person to see how it's changing them over time. Um, and they were taking fingerprints. Um, and they had decided to take fingerprints because according to their university, um, who was monitoring the ethics of their research, that was an anonymous identifier. And the reason that a fingerprint was an anonymous identifier was because the country where they were conducting the trials was did the national like government did not have a fingerprint database. So think about that for a second. They were collecting really sensitive information about individuals who may or may not be HIV positive. They were collecting their fingerprints um, as a way of essentially just proving that they were who they were in the course of a trial. So there were many other ways that they could do it, but biometrics was the easiest. And it was because they hadn't thought creatively about future changes. You know, what happens next year if the government rolls out a national fingerprint database and all of a sudden you have a community of people who are HIV positive and they can be very easily identified by their governments? Um, and this connects a bit to the next point, but embracing your inner pessimist. I think we're really... I'm hoping we're sort of moving beyond this hype cycle within data and technology that we can start being a little negative, like a little bit like cynical, a little bit pessimistic, <laughs> but in good measure. I mean, I think that there's still, you know, obviously a lot of positive things about data, but I think that is a really good way of red teaming. And then the next is be mindful of the line between innovation and experimentation on individuals. So innovation is really great, um, but ultimately there comes a point when you innovating in a way that is connected to people, that you're actually experimenting on them. And I think we need to be really careful when we, when we cross that line. So the next bit is a bit more straightforward, evaluating for open washing. Um, the uh, best definition I've heard of open washing recently is um, making something transparent in a minor area so that you can avoid transparency in a major, more important area. Um, so uh, thinking about a government who um, makes a, a, a small open data set on their education facilities in their country, but there are, is zero accountability for political corruption in that country. So they go to events and they say, look at how open we are with our education data. But ultimately, they are horribly intransparent as an, as a, as an organization or as a political party. Um, I'm sure there are many countries that are possibly going through your heads right now of countries that are very good at playing that, that double game. Um, and that is open washing, and we don't want to actively participate in it. Um, and I think it's important to remember that, you know, why do governments give us data? Uh, 
because it makes them more efficient, uh, it creates economic value, and it creates social value, but also because it makes them look good, they have to, and it can distract from this lack of transparency in other areas. And I think that's fine. It's political calculus that we should exploit, but not necessarily uh, make it easy for, for governments and large institutions to give us something small so that we can give them massive credit that gives them cachet so they can actually do bad things in other areas. Another is power analysis. And for this, I think this is a much more complex process that is context dependent. It's very context dependent, so it's hard to write any truisms about it. But I think just a couple of questions that I think that everybody should ask themselves when they're thinking about opening data or when they're thinking about um, these kinds of projects or, or even advocacy around open data is if we're making choices about what to open, how are we analyzing power? Are we analyzing it at all? Um, are we consulting communities about what data sets they want, or, or are we identifying low-hanging fruit and making data sets open when there are actors that are interested in opening data for a certain reason or cause? And are we privileging the federal and commercial over the local? Um, so are we privileging high-level data sets that are important at this stage to build open data infrastructure, but ultimately are we ever going to start focusing on how open data affects actual people? Um, and are we considering that in the way that we analyze what energy we put into opening data? So if we're consistently partnering with large institutions with significant power to open data, are we actually just supporting a process whereby the powerful have more access to more technology and data, are supported um, to make use of that data, but ultimately we're not questioning whether or not we're looking in the right place. Um, are we looking in places where there are less powerful people that uh, supporting them through these kinds of processes would actually be massively beneficial to them um, in a way that they're sort of locked out from existing processes now? And I've, I've mentioned it at the very beginning, but um, what is the Responsible Data Forum? Um, I think that there's, I've just thrown out a lot of things and I'm, I don't quite know the makeup of the room, so how many of you are involved in actual project decision making around open data? But there's a fantastic community of organizations and people um, that, uh, there's more than 500 practitioners now um, on this mailing list that is incredibly active, and you can ask a question and say, I have a conundrum, I'm thinking about this, but I'm a bit concerned about this, or a law has changed in my country and I'm worried that I'm running afoul of it. <laughs> or you, know, you, can, you can ask all types of questions connected to responsible data, and it's surprising how many people are there with the niche expertise to actually answer really specific questions. So people on the list from, uh, machine learning experts to uh, data scientists who can tell you whether or not you've, uh, you're massively screwing up your de-identification strategy um, or how you're thinking about anonymization. Um, and they will, you know, they might mock you a little bit, but ultimately you can get to the information that you need. Um, to um, development organization staffers who have had to advocate to senior people in their INGO about why responsible data policy is important and why they should actually think about these things and can give you tips on how to advocate. Um, the, the range of skills is really uh, diverse, but the passion and interest in responsible data as a process and as sort of a support community is really rich. So I encourage you guys to join if you have questions or want to be involved in those discussions. Um, and that's it for sort of talking at you. Um, I'd be really curious to hear, I don't know, Anna, I'm sure you have a, <laughs> a way of facilitating questions, but um, if you guys have any questions or if there are particular things that you saw in the presentation that you were like, what the what, um, or uh, something like that. Anyone? Yeah. 
I have a question. Okay. Um, so I so I read a, a story that you mentioned. Uh, well, you didn't mention the story, but you mentioned the, the platform of uh, stories that people are putting together on kind of case studies. Yeah. Um, and so I think Twitter's worked with the Samaritans to yeah. to code certain words in tweets and then get in touch with the person around potential depression or, or things like that that they might be able to help with. Yeah. I know there's a kind of there's a movement within journalism called peace journalism where people think that the media are in a position to help certain, in certain ways, whether it's yeah. within a development context or a human rights context. Um, and they think that because they're able to do that, they should. Yeah. But obviously a lot of media groups want to be, remain impartial. So do yeah. you see there being a, a tension there? Um, I am never having been a journalist in a situation where I felt like my media outlet could make a positive difference in the story I was covering. I can't say what that experience would be like. Um, I think that what we've seen a lot around um, large institutions that are doing much more engagement online is that they haven't always done a good job of managing expectations. So um, uh, institutions that release things and say, reach out to us if you have, uh, if you have information about a human rights violation in your country. Um, the kinds of information you get back is often not research quality, here's what happened, I will now give you my gender, my age, uh, where this happened, what institution violated me in a very specific structured thing. I'm going to say, please help me, I need your help, I have been violated in X way, and this is not helpful for a research process, but it's also not helpful for an individual that invests that energy and time into submitting into a system that they think will be able to help them. And so I feel like there's a lot of responsible data issues around opening your doors to engagement or even hinting that maybe you might be interested in influencing the discourse that you're a part of. Because I think it's people don't know and they see those things and they take them very seriously um, in ways that I don't think we can anticipate sitting in a high rise in London. So, mm -hmm. but, I'm, but I'm not a journalist, so I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Do others have thoughts on that? I don't know if... No questions, none at all. I can also ask or answer questions after if you want to talk with me not on camera. That's also an option. <laughs> yeah. How do you actually plan for an unintended consequence? Because you, you were saying, yeah, you, could, you were saying um, war, gaming. Yeah. But it's so hard to do because I remember Absolutely. an example of people giving mosquito nets to fight malaria. Yeah. Realized a couple of years later they've killed the river because fishermen were using those mosquito nets yeah. for fishing. Yeah. And I think if your if your line is do no harm, so everything that we do, we we will do no harm, and you also try and plan for unintended consequences, and you do spend considerable time not just thinking and sort of sitting at your desk and trying to guess what's going to happen, but really engaging other people that have tried similar things, um, other partner organizations working in a context that you're working in, really invest that initial energy. I think that the chances that you can prevent unintended consequences increases, um, which is the purpose of the responsible data process and the, that way of thinking. It's We can't inoculate ourselves from any future harms that we can't anticipate, but I think we can say from a principal perspective that we act to do no harm and that we will do everything we can to, to prepare um, for unintended consequences or avoid them altogether. But I, it's true, like you can't tell the future. It's really hard. <laughs> um, Thank you. Any other questions at all? 
Um, so I'll have another question. Okay. I'll just say um, uh, what are the kind of... How, how do you convince organisations, so humanitarian organisations, for example, that may not have considered a responsible data policy uh, to adopt one? Is it, is it kind of scare stories or is it... Are they receptive? Yeah, I think that that's a really fantastic question. Um, so if you'll see here, we have on the right responsible data reflection stories. So a few years ago, um, we got some funding to, to find harm stories because the problem, one problem that was assumed to exist, and it, I think it, it does to a certain extent, is that if you can't demonstrate concrete harms, that people won't actually invest energy in avoiding those harms. Um, so we got funding to do these, and through the course of them realized that that's actually not as useful because by having harm stories, you want alienate people who you're accusing of having caused harm. Um, and you also, you flatten people's ability to critically assess a situation into a series of things that they want to avoid. So here's concrete harm story X. As long as we don't do that, we're okay. Um, and I think it, it, it sort of reduces our ability to be critical. Um, and so we changed the name of the project and ultimately changed the methodology of the project into reflection stories. So it's nine reflection stories that take a particularly germane example where there were a tremendous amount of responsible data challenges and some unintended consequences and unpack the process of how the project manager or the organization that was hosting those projects, how they handled it and ultimately maybe what they would have done differently, what kinds of questions they would have asked themselves if they could do it again, but a much less sort of threatening approach. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I do think that when you're working with organizations who are generating data in different circumstances, so humanitarian context, ur urgency often takes precedence over anything else. Um, urgency and standards so that they sort of fit within these, this infrastructure of the humanitarian community. Um, but I think generally we're seeing more and more organizations are reaching out to us and saying, mm -hmm. we want this, we know it's a problem, we know it's something that we want to address, but we have no idea how to start. Um, and actually responsible data becomes a frame that's really useful for unpacking that. So a lot of people are increasingly sensitized to the needs, which means we don't have to sort of say boo and, and scare them uh, before they're interested, which is nice. Okay, great, yeah. thank you. I forgot to ask as well, do you see where you're from? It's the uh, hi, my name is Sunita, I'm from CX Partners. So what you just mentioned about organizations coming to you, do you have any stories as to what made them realize that they want to take that path? Yeah. So how did they got there? Yeah. Usually there's a really passionate individual that's terrified with how their organization is functioning. Um, and they're like, I'm trying really hard to convince my colleagues that this is important but I don't really know quite what I'm doing yet, and I'm sure that they're smart people, and if I could come up with the right arguments or the right process or the right recommendations, that they would be very happy to listen to me. Um, and so it's become this process of us working with nodes within organizations of really passionate people that are, are very um, engaged on this issue. Like, for example, we've been working with, um, for the past maybe two or three years, with Oxfam uh, GB on their responsible data policy, which they launched last year. And a lot of that work was done by pretty much one individual. Um, and uh, most people in the responsible data community know her very well. And she has shown how to influence an entire INGO. Like, she's actually influencing other parts of Oxfam and has, like, she's infected the organization with an interest in responsible data. And I think that it's, that's kind of our, been our theory of change, is if you can find the individuals that are really passionate and give them the resources and the support and the encouragement that they need, because it can be very 
frustrating to have these conversations when people are very stuck on data security, information security, uh, legal requirements for how we extract information from communities, it can be really difficult to get into sort of touchy-feely territory of empowerment and inclusion. Um, and so, so that's, it's usually an individual. Um, but I think there have been moments for organizations where things have gone wrong or they are getting pressure from funders who are increasingly adopting these kinds of approaches. Um, or they've run into someone who mentioned it, or they've seen the sites, or they've been to an event. And I think it's, it's mostly, it's such an obvious idea, but I think it's also a, ma a matter of being just, just seeing it, and then you get kind of like curious about it, and then you read a bit more, and then you're like, oh yeah, this is legitimate, we should, we should be thinking about this. Um, so yeah, I think that's, but it's usually individuals. Uh, hi, Paul Cannon, uh, Daddy for Good. Uh, apologies, um, I've, I've come in late, so you may have already answered this. But um, we've been toying with the idea of writing a data manifesto. More than toying, we've sort of like half written one, or got a draft. And is there any value from, from your side of having something that people could just sign up to? Yeah, I think, I mean, we've talked a lot as a community about different mechanisms of creating buy-in and sort of almost peer pressure. Um, and I think, you know, one, one area was standards, but we really, really were not interested in that because then it, I don't, have you heard of the town that eliminated all of their street signs? All of their signs, all of them, and basically said people will be better and more capable at driving if there's no signage because they're constantly thinking and wondering and, and like making sure that they're safe and they're evaluating the situation. Very small town, just saying that. Um, <laughs> but, but it had m massively positive consequences for, for accidents. Um, and so there was actually a researcher who did uh, a randomized control trial with a few towns, removed signage from some, added insane amounts of signage in some, and then kept some control uh, towns. And what happened was drivers, when they had a lot of signage places, actually lose the capacity to critically think when they're in a situation where there isn't a sign explicitly telling them to do something. Um, so it's, a, it's this, this human thing where once you have rules and once you have a framework that tells you what to do, you relax your critical thinking skills. And I think that a lot of this is about developing skills so that you're always thinking about these things and that you're kind of thinking about where you're driving and what could happen and these kinds of things and not saying where's the signage. So just to say that that was sort of the standards conversation was like to try and avoid creating that thing where you have tick boxes and people then just turn off and they're like, cool, we did that thing and you know we, we complied. Um, and I think manifestos, are great in, in as much as they are community developed and not a way for senior leadership and organizations also to signal interest without actually having to invest resources or think really. Like, oh, that peer organization that's kind of like us, they signed that manifesto, I guess we should too. Um, sort of getting out of that, that logic. But I think ultimately the idea of writing down principles is, I think, a fantastic exercise as a community, and I think there's a lot of value in that, and I think demonstrating what a manifesto looks like to you and your organization is actually likely incredibly useful. I think the mechanism of a manifesto as a way of encouraging more thoughtfulness, I'm not sure. I haven't actually looked much at sort of the impact of manifestos, I guess. Yeah. We've got some online. Got a question from ODI Bristol, which is, what suggestions do you have for the public engagement 
to find out what open data people want published? So how do you engage the public? Well, I think, I mean, a few things. One, I am a recent transport to London, so my understanding of mechanisms between ODIs and local city uh, populations is limited. <laughs> um, I would imagine that there are fora like this that you create um, and you invite people to. Um, I would imagine that um, identifying community leaders that are leaders in particular areas or have different uh, roles within local government and are already already have sort of a ground game in talking to people and understanding what, what they're interested in. But I think ultimately people don't care about what data you open. They care about what questions they can answer once the data is opened. So figuring out what kinds of questions people have that are not currently answerable or that they feel like infrastructure should exist for them to be able to answer them and that kind of thing and not thinking about it from the release and publication side. Thank you. Hello. Um, I don't know much about data, so this might be uh, not a valid question. But can you? Is there a movement within responsible data where um, organisations that are using data in a commercial way take? some form of responsibility in terms of releasing some of that data because there is a, a greater good for it? So it's a very interesting question. Um, there is a community that works on, and this is, this is true, data responsibility, not responsible data. Um, and the data responsibility community, and I'm very sorry for, for that because it is confusing, um, they focus on creating opportunities for companies that have large amounts of data that might have social value in it, but they're afraid to make it public because they don't want to violate uh, privacy laws, they don't want to get themselves in trouble. They, they're working to create spaces for data sharing that make it possible for those data sets to be either limited released or uh, accessible for certain organizations or for certain mm -hmm. events and spates of time um, so that we're not essentially saying no companies don't release this information because uh, you could get in trouble. Um, so there are communities that are trying to make it easier for companies to contribute the data that they have um, when it has social value in it. Yeah. Any further questions? Hi. Um, is there any significance to the RDF? I mean, I because we work with linked data okay. and with RDF, <laughs> and so I just wonder if your um, organization had any particular. It's an accidental acronym. Yeah, I think ODI is familiar with this concept. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah accidental. Hannah, are there any more questions online? No? Oh, this one here. Hi, um, it's quite a high level one really, but I guess it was a question about what meaningful consent for data collection and storage and release um, actually can look like when you've yeah. got quite a distinct power dynamic between the people sure. who yeah. originally owned it and uh, the organisation. Yeah, so I'll use the example of Oxfam um, because um, uh, the woman, the ambassador within Oxfam, Amy O'Donnell, has done some really fantastic work on consent. She's That's one of her sort of pet projects and, and real passions. Um, but they've been looking at how to 
create consent forms that actually show how long someone, uh, an enumerator, spends on the actual form so that you can see if someone is sort of flicking to the bottom and just saying yes, uh, or if the person is actually slowly reading through it. Um, and they've actually been considering incorporating it into their training for when they do uh, surveys, so that they're actually coaching people and reprimanding people when they move too quickly through consent forms to start to try and make that process meaningful. So I feel like there's, there's things like that um, that I think uh, organizations are exploring. But there's also even more meta challenges of when you introduce technology into a conversation with someone in a developing country where you say, I am now demonstrating my power by showing you I have a tablet that's worth more than your you know, monthly income. Um, and I think that there's a lot of that hasn't been resolved, and I don't think it can be resolved, but I think there are a lot of organizations that have been exploring those kinds of ways of making sure that it's genuine and it's not sort of a tick box exercise. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Okay, cool. Any more questions? Um, I'm interested in, in your thoughts around the, the kind of concept of data and how that is different from a sort of broadly Western perspective than certain areas in, in developing countries, for example. And we, we talk about data and we work with data and we try to make data open, but we don't think of data in their terms. Have you considered that within the work that you do? Yeah, I think a lot of the reason, too, that there's no sort of rubber stamp of responsible data is also because these terms and these concepts mean something dramatically different depending on the context you're in. Like, privacy means something totally different to us in this country right now who have accepted the fact that CCTVs are on every corner than it does to someone in Kenya who uh, would like to give their biometric information so that they can get access to services and they don't really care if they're in some database. Um, so I think that being open in that process of thinking about the, the different perspectives of what privacy means to different communities, and privacy is just one, like consent is another one, like there, there is, these conversations are so culturally loaded and I think we, we oftentimes try and make it easier on ourselves by sort of sticking to the cultural context where the power is. And so I think it's easier to say, let's just adopt a Western perspective of privacy because that's easy for us because we get it. <laughs> um, and I think on the data side, um, what do you mean when you say that people have a different sort of feeling about data itself? Uh, I suppose information broadly. So we might consider data as being quite granular where in certain areas they, they store information, they collect information that affects their, their local lives in completely different ways than we would, especially around data collection. So, yeah. I think we're further down a line of um, expectation mm -hmm. um, and also infrastructure. Um, and that there's... I don't know, I find it really interesting our, the, the way that we think about ownership. So the fact that we are consistently signing away access and ownership to our data and information at incredible rates, despite the fact that we have these privacy laws and despite the fact that we do have technical infrastructure that we could use instead of Apple's infrastructure or whatever else we choose to use that closes things down. Um, and I find it really interesting the way that we continue to sort of make these choices um, and then are surprised when other people start making those choices when they have those same choices to make. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but I, I think I need to keep thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. Well, unless there are any other questions, um, I think we can wrap up. So please join me in thanking Alex for a really, yeah. really enlightening <laughs> If you'd like to.
to stick around at the end uh, to come and talk to us, you can. Um, next week's uh, Friday lunchtime lecture will be on how an interactive map in Manchester is being used to influence policymaking and city planning there. Um, and thank you all for coming. You've been listening to a Friday lunchtime lecture brought to you by the Open Data Institute.